Women of War is recorded on the lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, and we pay our respects to their elders past and present. Sovereignty was never ceded. This episode discusses atrocities committed by the Nazi regime in World War II, rape, racism, anti-Semitism, attempted suicide, self-harm, mental anguish, gendered pejorative terms, and drug use. This episode was recorded under restrictions in Victoria, so there may also be audio issues for which we apologise. August 2nd, the day before we recorded this episode, is marked by some countries as Roma Holocaust Memorial Day. On the night of August 2nd, 1944, nearly 3,000 Romani people were killed at Auschwitz concentration camp, and the total number of Romani people killed during the entire Holocaust may be as high as half a million. The Romani are still one of the most persecuted ethnic groups in Europe. Leni Riefenstahl exploited, imprisoned Roma to use in her work, and we'd like to pay respect to all Roma, and especially to the memory of those people. You are not forgotten. Hi, I'm Hannah, a PhD student studying women's anti-nuclear activism, and I am very tired because I woke up about five minutes ago and I'm only halfway through my coffee. So apologies for that. <laughs> and I'm Nicola and I woke up about an hour ago and I am a Masters of Education student finishing off her degree who works also in the fields of gender and crime history. And welcome to Women War, a podcast that Nicola pitched and I made happen because apparently she's the Lennon and I'm the McCartney, even though her favourite Beatle is Paul and I don't really know much about the Beatles to know who is who. It basically means I'm the ideas man and you're the make it happen man. I'm okay with this. So do you remember when I kept like titling people's theses in honours? Like people are like, I need to call my thesis something. And I'd be like, what's it about? Excellent. Call it this. And they'd be like, yes. That, that, <laughs> I, I, I'm like the ideas man. So um, enough like happy stuff though. So this week on Women of War, we cross the line. We're crossing the mag- Maginot line exact, to be exact to focus on our tr- first truly ever horrible person. Yeah, Molly Brandt, who we talked about earlier, did support the British during the American Revolutionary War, but, like, as far as I know, the British didn't have little skulls on their hats at the time. Yeah. So this week, ahead of schedule, we are going to be looking at one of the most famous filmmakers and propagandists in history who was influenced film since her heyday, Helena Berta Amali Lenny Riefenstahl, better known as Lenny Riefenstahl, who made the most famous films for and about Adolf Hitler and the National Sozialistisches Deutsches Arbeiterpartei, or the Nazi Party. So we moved this episode forward for two reasons. One, Nicola, who wrote it and is to blame for any enormous mistakes, historical errors, and bad jokes. Actually, I take claim for some bad jokes, I feel. Yeah. Uh, Nicola is off on placement for a month and she will be clinically dead by the end of it. Yes, I will. And number two, Lenny Riefenstahl. Of the two main films she is remembered for, one is called Olympia, which she made during the 1936 Berlin Olympic Games, about the Olympics. It's probably the most famous film about the Olympics. It's the only one I I can think of. I don't think there's any... Are there any films set during the Olympics? Also, so um, while we're recording this, the Tokyo Olympics are underway. So Olympic style, we're going to give you Lenny Riefenstahl's stats. She's in fine form today, Hannah, coming up to the camera. So Lenny Riefenstahl, born 22nd of August 1902 in the Kingdom of Prussia within the German Empire. Lenny first tried to be a dancer before moving into acting and filmmaking. And she died on the 8th of September 2003 in the Federal Republic of Germany. Lenny's filmmaking career truly took off following working with director Arnold Fank, a noted filmmaker who worked in the Alpine film subgenre. 
Riefenstahl rose to artistic prominence during the German Reich, better known as the German Republic, but achieved worldwide fame and or notoriety under the German Reich and the Greater German Reich, aka the Third Reich, aka the Thousand Year Reich, aka the Nazi dictatorship over the state of Germany. Please don't make me say Reich again. Nah. The Third Reich was named as such because the Nazis incorrectly believed they were the successor state to the German Empire. May it last a thousand years. Which had ended in 1918. And the Holy Roman Empire. May it last a thousand years. Which had run from 800-ish to 1800-ish BCE. Yeah. So the thousand-year Reich lasted 12 years from 1943 yeah, to 1945. So 988 years short of its intended span. Because Nazis are losers. A few more stats on Leni Riefenstahl. Claimed that whenever she spurned a lover, they would threaten suicide unless she came back to him. That happened. Those men in question called bullshit. Largest age gap between romantic partners is 40 years. <laughs> um, film, film running times. The Triumph of the Will, her most famous work, 114 minutes. Olympia, 226 minutes all up. <laughs> I'm falling asleep just thinking about it. I watched most of Triumph, like, skipping every, like, five minutes every 10 minutes if that makes sense and then I gave up on Olympia before it got to Jesse Owens because it just was not worth my fucking time all right we are under starter's orders let's head to Berlin 1902 thanks Nicola so Berlin 1902 Berlin in this period was the capital of the German empire a rapidly modernizing metropolis that rivaled New York in terms of culture languages crime rates and the gap between the rich and the poor much of the Berlin of Lenny's childhood was gone by 1945, flattened by Allied bombings. Wedding, where she grew up, was a suburb for low-income workers and would eventually be split in twain by the Berlin Wall. Wedding, due to the cramped and unsanitary conditions, was often hit by outbreaks of TB or rickets. The infant mortality rates were 42% in Wedding at the beginning of the 20th century, which was double that of the rest of Berlin. It wasn't all bad times in vetting. If you survived the rickets, the TV, the cold, the lice, uh, there was a pond for ice skating. And in 1905, someone opened a little studio where people made one real films. Lenny was born five months after her parents married. Mm. <laughs> her mother, Bertha, was one of 18 children. Bertha's own mother died soon after Bertha's birth, and Bertha's father married the family's nanny, a woman named Ottilie, and they had three more kids, so a total of 21 kids. That is... 21 too many. I know. Bertha's mother may well have been a Polish Jew, and it's interesting to note that on Lenny's ancestral record, she marked down Bertha's mother as Ottilie, not the woman who'd actually given birth to Bertha. Granted, this might not actually have been to hide the Jewish ancestry. Ottilie lived through the Riefenstahls in wedding, and she and Lenny were very close. But later on, when the regime, when the Nazi regime took over, you did have to have these like ancestral forms that proved you weren't a Jew. So it could be one of the other. Lenny's dad, Alfred, was also working class and had moved to Berlin from Brandenburg in search of money, just hoping to find some on the street. Yes, <laughs> some. A tale as old as time. He trained as a plumber but called himself a salesman. Eventually, he became an influential member of the community, working in plumbing and ventilation, as toilets and the like went from something only the wealthy had to something everyone wanted. Albert was very strict and controlling. A few years after Lenny's birth, Alfred and Bertha had a son, Heinz. Perhaps unsurprisingly, Heinz would not live through the 1940s. So, more on that later. Lenny grew up during World War I, which was nice at first, until it wasn't. Germany was, oh, what's the word? Oh, yes, fucked following World War I. But Lenny had found the wartime itself mostly exciting as planes rumbled overhead and troops marched through the streets on the way to the front. 
When the war or life got too much, she tended to retreat into traditional fairy tales. As we said, her dad was very domineering and it was his way or the highway, which meant an unstoppable force and an immovable object when it came to Lenny. Though her dad forced her into the highest level of German high school in the gymnasium, Lenny was not up for it and she rebelled until she was put in the Lyceum, which is a step down, academically speaking. Even then, she only excelled in athletics, including gymnastics, ice skating, swimming and running, and she found she had a very high pain tolerance. Berta, her mum, also suffered under Alfred's control. But when he was away, they would go out to the movies or out on the town. At the age of 16, Lenny went to audition for her first film, Opium, which starred Conrad Veidt. Which if you know, you know. If you don't, you don't. And I don't. She didn't get the part despite going to some callbacks. But while she was there, she caught sight of some dancers practicing and it called to her. She wanted to dance, but her dad wouldn't let her. Why? Partially because he was a selfish asshole. But also, this is 1918. In November of that year, there was a revolution that took down Kaiser Wilhelm. A few months later, the Versailles Treaty lent further credence to the popular view that Germany had been stabbed in the back by her allies. There was violence between the left wing and the right wing in the streets, and over 400 political murders by 1922. There was an, awful, there was an almost willful numbness to violence in Berlin, even with the new Weimar Republic. And so that's why her dad didn't want her going out and dancing but you can't kind of blame him in that context. Lenny, but didn't give a shit though. So her dad decided that in amongst the violence and the food shortages and the influenza pandemic, oh, this is ringing way too true. Maybe he sent her to a domestic science school where she learned about the three ideals that would later embody the role of most women under the Third Reich, Kinder, Kirche and Küche, or kids, church and cooking. However, he didn't know that Bertha was paying for Lenny to take dance lessons at the nearby Grimm Reiter School of the Dance. The apparently famous dancer Anita Berber, who died tragically young, danced there. Berber was meant to perform in a recital but was ill, so Lenny was called up to take over the role. But this meant her father heard about it and blew his top, threatening his wife with divorce and his daughter with boarding school. So Lenny decided she had to stay in Berlin, so she pretended to repent for her dancing and asked to go to the Berlin School of Arts and Crafts, and that lasted about five minutes before she couldn't keep the repentant act up, so Alfred packed her off to boarding school. Even though the school had no dancing lessons, Lenny took her ballet shoes anyway. It helped. Dramatic presentation was a class which involved dance, and so she got to keep that up without her dad's knowledge. By this time, Lenny had figured out how she'd get through the next years of her life and get back to Berlin in compliance with her father's wishes until she made it as a dancer. So she told her dad she would work as his secretary, which meant she would be under his supervision all the time. The thing she needed was to get back to Berlin. Shithouse, as it was at the time, Berlin was still a centre of arts and culture in Europe. Upon her return to Berlin, Lenny entered a beauty pageant and won second prize. Why are we inserting Monopoly joke here? I remember this now. This led to her being offered a chance to debut as a dancer at the Variety Theatre in Berlin, La Scala. She also started to grow a long list of lovers, and to quote one of her biographers, Stephen Buck, quote, she had a penchant for encouraging admirers of social or artistic pedigree until she was sure enough of their devotion to reject them with showy indifference, end quote. She wasn't such a bad guy. I could admire some of this. You're going to regret saying that. I said I could. Nah. <laughs> I'm, I'm putting in all the disclaimers for my comment. One guy, she claimed, attempted suicide when she tried to dump him, and he later ended up in a, an asylum. Lenny's response, quote, he never forgot me as long as he lived, end quote. She'd often claim her exes tried to kill themselves after she dumped them. Which Lenny, sure he, yeah, sure, Lenny, sure. 
Lenny in many ways is like Roberta Cowell to me. She edited and re-edited her own life story to fit the narrative she wanted to share. Um, except Roberta bummed the Nazis and Lenny was a Nazi. If you asked her, if you asked Lenny, I mean, every single one of her exes was obsessed with her and they never got over her and they'd always come back to her begging for more. Lenny liked to be in control of every aspect of her life and doesn't seem to have had many female friends. So I'm I think not we, shocked by this. So I think we all know someone like Lenny and if Lenny Riefenstahl had Facebook, she'd be sharing posts about how much she hates drama in her life and is not like other girls when she would be the one causing the drama. Oh, my God. So I was reading the Stephen Back biography thinking, he's being very harsh and judgy on her, but this view is, like, across the board. So Riefenstahl wasn't without hardship, but she was a manipulator. She was incredibly selfish, and she regularly used people for her own ends and cast them aside happily. Lenny's dancing career took off, and she was the greatest dancer who ever existed, if you ask Lenny. One quote was this, which Lenny used in her press book. When one sees this perfectly shaped creation stand in the music, it fleetingly crosses one's mind that there might indeed be splendours of dance that none of the others have achieved. The glory of the dancer who appears once every thousand years with consummate grace and singular beauty. Wow. End quote. The wow wasn't in the quote. I'm just... <laughs> yeah. But she actually edited the quote, and in actuality the quote was, Hannah, okay. would you like to share? So after... Every thousand years with consummate grace and singular beauty. But then this girl begins to unfold her body and the notion wilts. The glory fades, the tone grows flat. A wonderful dummy moves, undoubtedly taking pleasure in the space around her, filled with thirst for rhythm and longing for music. But finally the sight inspires a quiet sadness that such superficial perfection is not blessed with the grace of an inner gift, with the grandeur of genius, or with the flame of the demonic end quote get wrecked love it so by all accounts she was perfectly competent and had a lot of stamina but as this quote seems to show um people pointed out her dancing was soulless which doesn't surprise me Mm. lenny did find some success and gave 70 concerts from october 1923 to may 1924 and was earning relatively good money for these performances in February 1924, her romantic partner and business support, Heinrich Richard Sokal, a Jewish banker, booked some performances for her in London and Paris, which infuriated Lenny because she'd assumed these performances were spontaneous tributes to her new renown. Who does this bitch think she is, Marta Hari? So <laughs> Sokal briefly broke up over this, but they were the Ross and Rachel of the Berlin film scene. At least Lenny would think of herself as the Rachel, but in many ways she's more like the Janice, showing up and thinking very highly of herself when the literal Marlene Dietrich is also in that same city. So I guess Marlene Dietrich is Rachel here. After eight months on tour, Lenny injured her leg and her dancing career was more or less done. She ignored doctor's instructions to rest her knee and instead went up for bit parts at Ufa Film Studios. Ufa was one of the biggest studios in Berlin at the time. And by this point in the mid-1920s, Berlin was beginning to rival Hollywood itself in terms of output and quality. She had one bit part in a film called Ways to Strength and Beauty, but later in life claimed to have never seen the film or even heard of it. Interestingly, this film, with its focus on athletes and athletes' bodies, uses shots that are, in hindsight, almost prototypes of the shots Lenny would perfect in Triumph, The Will and Olympia. But her Berlin-based film career didn't take off. One day Lenny was waiting for a train to take her to the doctor when she saw a poster for a film called Mountain of Destiny by the director, Dr Arnold Funk. 
thank I don't know instead of the doctor she went to the movies and was hypnotized by this film Fank worked within this subgenre of alpine films, which were basically adventure films where skiers and climbers battled nature in the Alps. These films were a dramatic nature-filled opposite to the most, more famous and known films coming out of Berlin studios that were a lot more experimental. Think the Doctor of Ca- the Cabinet of Dr. Caligari starring Conrad Veidt and Fritz Lang's films The, Ni- the Nibelungen and Metropolis. These were gloomy, dark, experimental films. So alpine films, on the other hand, were all about the glory of nature and athleticism, which also made them perfect vehicles later (laughs) on for Nazi ideals about German superiority. This isn't in hindsight, by the way. Contemporary critic Seafield Krakawa, who was also Jewish, pointed this out in the 1920s. In the future, Lenny would blame Jewish critics when her films did not receive the acclaim she felt they deserved. Lenny, you just suck. Arnold Fank was an experimental and innovative filmmaker obsessed with the mountains. Lenny became obsessed with meeting Funk, and so she called up her ex, Sokol, and told him she wanted to reunite, but they should do it at the Dolomite Mountains in Italy. He was like, sounds like a good time, uh, and paid for himself, Lenny, and Lenny's brother, Heinz, to head out there. Sokol had also been dabbling in film financing. The hotel had a screening of The Mountain of Destiny, and after the film finished, Lenny turned to Sokol and said loudly, that's the kind of film I'd like to make. Turns out the star of the film, Louis Trenker, was the one showing the film, and he came over to meet Lenny, who told him she'd be in his next film. Classic. Lenny, Sokol, and Trenker had a chat, and Lenny found out that Frank Funk was in Berlin, so the next day she fucked off to Berlin to meet Funk. I, and the implication was, was... Yeah, the implication was she left her brother and her ex, like, in the mountains. Yeah. That was going to be my question. Presumably, they're just up there. <sighs> Heinz comforting Sokol. I, I think by this point, Sokol was like, okay, this fucking bitch. All right. So, meet Funk. She did. Uh, Lenny showed Funk her press book and dancing photos with all of her like edited reviews. Uh-huh. She told him that she'd be his next star and she booked herself in for experimental knee surgery to get herself in like condition to be a movie star. As she recovered, Funk appeared by her bedside with a screenplay he'd scribbled at in three days with the title The Holy Mountain, subtitle, written for the dancer Lenny Riefenstahl. At least, that's how, sorry. at least that's how Lenny Riefenstahl told the story. I was like, has he even seen her dance at this point? Because So he did later claim that he did know her before, like he'd seen her dance because she gave 70 performances. Yeah, um, okay. So he had heard of her. And he said the script was already in development and he'd finished it off in time. All right. But that's not the Lenny Riefenstahl way of looking at it. She's the most important, wonderful, inspiring actress in the world. Like, you don't understand. She's so I'm good. Sorry, I'm sorry. I, I apologise profusely. Never apologise to Lenny Riefenstahl. She's a fucking bitch. <laughs> uh, Lenny also brought in Sokol to help fund the project. And now we're going to skip a lot of what happened next because it involves just a lot of mountain climbing and seduction. Lenny claimed Fank was madly in love with her for the rest of her career, while Fank claimed she'd used him. Louis Trenker was cast as a male lead, and Lenny's character was also given an opportunity to dance on screen. During the film, Lenny began an affair with Trenker, which, according to Lenny, led to Funk threatening suicide. All of them were in love with me, she said. The director and Trenker and all of them. I just don't believe any of this. When she couldn't win over Trenker completely, she began an affair with cameraman Hans Schneeberger. Sorry, that's just a great name. I think it basically means snowman. I love it. No citizen. Hans Schneeberger. Sorry. I apologise to any Schneebergers listening. Ah. 
Despite the drama and presumably STIs behind the scenes, The Holy Mountain was a huge success for an Alpine film. The critics hated it, audiences loved it. Lenny felt she was truly on her way, but soon found she was sort of trapped in the genre of Alpine films. She made a few more films as the main, usually only lady in the story, but felt she was always coming up second to Marlena Dietrich, as she should be. Uh, this was incorrect because she wasn't even on Marlena Dietrich's radar. And funny, Marlena was in a movie called The Blue Angel, and later on, the first film Lenny Riefenstahl wrote and directed alone was called The Blue Light. I think the, co- the similarity is more obvious in English than in German, but it's still just like, come the fuck on. Hmm. While stuck in this creative rut, climbing mountains with great skill and dedication, Lenny also learned, or was taught, aspects of film theory and creation from Fank. Fank wrote a movie in, a quick, in his typically quick style, which Lenny's on-again, off-again boyfriend, Sokal, agreed to help finance along with the studio, Ufa. Humiliated, Lenny had to be talked into taking a pay cut, even though she'd had trouble finding work, so she took it out on Funk. She said Funk didn't have the skill to direct the acting sequence of this film, which was to be called The White Hell of Pitts Palu. And so the studio brought on a secondary director at Lenny's request, G.W. Pabst, who had previously worked with Greta Garbo. This was why Lenny wanted to work with Pabst. If she couldn't be Dietrich, she'd be Garbo. Spoilers, she'd be neither. Pitts Palu. Pitts Palu, which is actually referenced in the film Inglorious Bastards during one of those long sequences where Quentin Tarantino shows how much he knows about film history in certain contexts. I have never seen a Quentin Tarantino film and I'm okay with this fact. I actually really love Inglorious Bastards and Reservoir Dogs. I think they're both fascinating films. Um, Reservoir Dogs is the most intense in the examination of like what Quentin Tarantino thinks men and criminals sound like. And, and Inglorious Bastards is actually really, really good. I would love to watch that with you. However... He is so far up his own ass. Anyway, Pitz Palu went on to be a smash success in Germany, wider Europe, and even the United States, but it didn't give Lenny everything she wanted. Her then-boyfriend, Hans Schneeberger, had worked on the film as a crewman and fell in love with the area in which they filmed. He dumped Lenny via letter, to which she figured someone had cast a spell on him, and then she cut herself on the arms and legs to distract herself. So in addition to being a fucking evil bitch, she is not a well woman. I take back my evil laugh. Like, she claimed to have cut herself in her arms and legs. Again, I do not trust most of what That's this lady true. says. That's true. I do enjoy someone else dumping her. That's satisfying to me. It's also funny because Edith Piaf got dumped via Telegram. The equivalent of a text message dump. Yep. This was a low point for Lenny, dumped by a letter, and her career, despite the success of Pitts Palou, was going nowhere fast. So she decided to make her moment happen and wrote, produced, and directed her own new work called The Blue Light in 1932. This she did entirely by herself, according to the 1938 re-release credits. Interestingly, in 1932, it was noted that Karl Mayer, a Jewish pacifist, and Bilal Blaz, a Hungarian Jewish communist, apologies to Hungarian listeners, were actually co-writers on the film. Blaz in particular was used by Lenny and never received payment for his work on the film. He did attempt to sue Lenny, but as this was mounted in January 1933, he later became more concerned with getting the hell out of Dodge, understandably. Funk also assisted Lenny with some aspects of editing and filming, or he didn't if you ask Lenny, or he saved the entire fucking film if you ask Funk. So I'm pretty sure there's a middle ground there. Working on this movie finally severed their relationship. Funk later refused to make propaganda films for the Nazis, 
but was eventually forced into making a German-Japanese pro-war film. The Blue Light also may not have been an original script, as it bore similarities <laughs> to a novel by Swiss, Swiss author Gustav Renker called Rock Crystal. Regardless, Lenny presented her work on The Blue Light as an early version of the auteur, the director as a solo artist. It premiered in Berlin and appeared at the by now fascist Venice Film Festival, it is no longer mostly fascist, to mostly positive press reviews in the, in the right-wing press and mostly negative reviews in the left-wing press. Sokal, who would flee Germany in the early 1930s, called Lenny saying to him, what do these Jewish critics understand about our mentality? They have no right to criticise our work. Sokal actually claimed that it was this point in 1932 when Lenny skipped over to the Nazi camp a year before the Nazis took power. She later said in no November 1932, quote, as long as the Jews are film critics, I'll never have a success. But watch out, when Hitler takes the rudder, everything will change. End quote. The Blue Light, as we said, was re-released with the Jewish actor cut out in 1938, along with the names of Jewish crew members and writers taken out of the credits. Any historical failures of the blue light the Reich claimed were, claimed were due to Jewish critical sabotage. In 1933, after a couple of false starts, Adolf Hitler took control of Germany. This has widely since been regarded as a bad move on the part of the German citizens. Leni Riefenstahl later claimed she had not heard of Hitler until she was on a publicity tour for the blue light in 1932, around July. She also claimed she'd never heard radio until 1938, even though she'd been interviewed on the radio in 1932. So what we're implying, really subtly here, is that Leni Riefenstahl can be trusted about as far as she could be thrown. During the blue light, she had read Mein Kampf, which, reminder, on the first page, blamed the Jewish press for Hitler's problems, and then immediately recommended it to Sokol, who, reminder, Jewish. And she called Hitler, quote, the coming man, unquote, and then she said she must meet him. So, yeah. In March 1932, she attended a Hitler rally, rally, which heightened her fascination with the man. She and many other people obviously found him fascinating and an alluring and convincing speaker. Ironically, as Bach points out, quote, the present day view of Hitler as a mesmerizing orator is, to a significant degree, a legacy of Lenny's rendering him in films yet to come, end quote. So Lenny said, quote, this is the coming man. I must meet him, end quote and meet him, she did. Lenny was, at the time, acting in a film called SOS Iceberg and was about to leave for Greenland to film there when she received a phone call from Hitler's buddy Wilhelm Bruckner. He invited her to meet with the Führer at a fishing village in the North Sea. Lenny leapt at the chance and abandoned her role to go meet with him. They had a long walk on the beach, please note I'm rolling my eyes while I wrote this bit, and had a conversation where they both talked about how good they were, but in a modest way. <laughs> Lenny... Lenny later claimed Hitler also said, once we come to power, you must make my films. Hitler saw Lenny as a prime example of German womanhood, despite the usually traditional and conservative roles the Nazis pushed onto women during their time in power. The nature of Hitler and Lenny's relationship has been debated since the 1930s, but Hitler's personal cameraman, Walter Frenz, had the strongest argument about the relationship between Hitler and Lenny. She was not his mistress or girlfriend, but rather she let people think she was because it increased her own influence. And she did have a ridiculous amount of influence. There is no female filmmaker equivalent to Leni Riefenstahl during this period, no matter where you go during the later war. Though there were some female filmmakers working in propaganda bureaus around the world, none had the reach nor artistic freedom Riefenstahl had. 
Lini was in Greenland for a lot of 1932, but soon returned to Berlin where she was a guest of the Goebbels and of Goering. Hitler also visited Lenny in her at her apartment with his cohort, and they looked at stills from the blue light. And so Lenny Riefenstahl was part of Hitler's inner circle when the Nazis took control of Germany in January 1933. Hermann Goering called Lenny himself when Hitler had been named Chancellor of Germany by a beleaguered and besieged Hindenburg. Within months, Nazi control over Berlin and Germany was entrenched. Once Lenny returned to Berlin, she was quickly put to work by Hitler. He brought her on to make what is now seen as the proto-triumph of the will, a film called Der Sieg des Glaubens und Zürich Wehrmacht, aka The Victory of Faith, Our Armed Forces, about the fifth Nazi party rally at Nuremberg. This film was also designed to cement Hitler in people's minds as a powerful and popular leader. However, Hitler later ordered this film destroyed because it showed him standing next to Ernst Röhm, leader of the Nazi party militia, whom he betrayed during the Night of Long Knives and had executed. Awkward. Elements of this film are later parodied by British wartime propaganda, which tells me this is as good a time as any to plug Lindsay Ellis's video, The Ethics of Nazi of Satire About Nazis, which has good discussion about the use of pageantry and fascist propaganda. Lenny used this film unwittingly as a warm-up to the triumph of the will, which she produced and directed the following year in part to replace the victory of faith. She used the victory of faith film as a warm-up, not Lindsay Ellis's video yes. as a warm-up. <laughs> I, I assume. I'm not an expert on this. The Triumph of the Will is one of the most influential films of all time. Unfortunately. Unfortunately, yes. It's like when Hitler was crowned Time Magazine's Man of the Year. It's not because he was good. The thing is, it's like it was very influential, but like a lot of the shots and stuff she used, people were already using them. It's just the way she put them together kind of really popularized and cemented them as shots to use. So nothing she does in that movie is really new. It's just the way she used them together, if that makes sense. Yeah. And I feel like as well, there would be an element of the leader of Germany supporting her as a filmmaker is going to help make her influential, regardless of the quality of her films as well. So you can see the influence of the triumph of the will in Star Wars, uh, in The Lion King during the song Be Prepared, and especially when tap-dancing stormtroopers form a swastika during the climax of The Producers. Great musical that we both got in trouble for laughing too loudly at. <laughs> it pioneered in part the use of moving camera, aerial shots, distorted perspectives, and its use of sound has been called revolutionary. The only diegetic sound, that is, sounds existing in the world of Triumph of the Will, is the speeches by various members of the Nazi party, and some call and response sequences of troops. The rest, from the crowd cheering sounds to the en masse Sieg hails and the overwhelming bombastic music, was added and edited in post-production to create an overwhelming sensory experience. By modern standards, many elements of the film are clumsy or very obvious. You have to remember, this wasn't designed to be watched on Vimeo on a dirty laptop screen through headphones. It was designed for huge cinemas with surround sound. Goebbels awarded Triumph the National Film Prize in 1935, and it won the Grand Prix at the Paris Film Festival, which Lenny trotted out for the rest of her life as evidence that it wasn't propaganda. Mm -hmm. The film was also the main reason that Lenny was on the front cover of Time in February 1936. I did not know that. Later on, after Nazis fall, and she's like being arrested by the Americans, she's like, don't you know who I am? I was on the cover of Time, and all these young Americans are like, 
I I don't give a fuck who you are. Anyway, <laughs> so I watched most of Triumph of the Will. It is very boring. Part of it is it's very repetitive. Um, so I put my stream of consciousness thoughts down as I watched it, occasionally skipping over five or ten minutes because it goes for nearly two hours. So here are some notes I made. Okay. Montage, including lots of shots of children and babies because they are the future. This is Germany's future, blah, blah, blah. Few people are ever seen alone except Hitler. It's a way of showing the power of the people. Lots of contrast of masses of people in support of the party with a solo leader figure in the foreground. There's basic ass symbolism everywhere. Flowers, sun, windows opening, chimney smoking. So industry and kitchen and church and children. There's also some shots of male Nazis doing each other's hair and bathing together. So, um, but they do have shorts on, but like, this is a point in history where men were allowed to do that to each other. And it was seen as quite manly and healthy. There's a lot of interesting studies actually about this in Nazi Germany and like the influence of like the body and how the body was seen in Nazi Germany is like, you know, like health and Lenny Riefenstahl is obsessed with the body. Like that's the main thing. There's nothing beneath the surface in her films. It's all about just the aesthetic. And that's and so, so like true that, of basically that, everything so, she ever made. There's so much of naked Nazis or mm. semi-naked Nazis doing things together. It's, you know, no homo. It's all about the aesthetic and the body and health and vitality. Yeah. My last two notes are, behold, the master race, kid chewing with his mouth open. And <laughs> look at these dickheads holding shovels like guns. So end of notes. There's a lot of rhetoric in this film of people of Germany being the state as the state is the people of Germany. And there's a lot more references to World War One than you'd think. Shots of what I think are World War One memorials and in the speeches given by Hitler. This film is an important historical artifact for another reason. It shows shots of pre-war Nuremberg, which was bombed, hang on, I need to find the word, yes, to fuck by 1945. Hitler held propaganda could contain no sense of doubt, and there's no sense of doubt at all. The film even begins with Hitler descending from the cl- through the clouds via an aeroplane, like God from heaven. Lini was at first reluctant to make either film, but not for the reasons you'd hope. She was more worried as she'd never made a documentary before. Not that these are really documentaries. And she was concerned by Goebbels wanting to release the film through the propaganda ministry as opposed to through a shell studio, like a real film. Hitler promised Lenny that he would keep the propaganda ministry from interfering with her artistic vision. Goebbels and Riefenstahl actually had quite a rivalry for the rest of the Goebbels' life. Um, so he was a bit of a gross pervert as well. She claimed he groped her once, which, you know, I believe, but you're sitting down next to Goebbels, not to victim blame, but uh, maybe don't sit with a bunch of fucking Nazis. Maybe so in my notes, in the yeah. inner circle of the Nazi party. Mm-hmm. So in my notes, I had a chuckle at the men holding shovels in the way you hold a rifle at rest, like propped up against your shoulder. So this is because, as we all know, the Germans were verboten to form military forces as part of the Treaty of Versailles. They did not listen to this. Um, so they, you could see the shovels as implying weapons, which they would later show off openly, even as like Neville Chamberlain was like, please don't. And, 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 and appeasement worked. Ugh. Yay! Good policy, Neville Chamberlain. This film, for many Germans, was the first time they saw themselves on screen as powerful, united, militaristic. For those who opposed the film, uh, for those who opposed the regime, the film was a warning of what they would come up against. Though this didn't stop many brave people trying within Germany and Austria after the Anschluss, including Sophie Scholl and the White Rose. 
Notably for modern audiences or contemporary audiences who've been paying close attention to the political situation, there is no express references to Jewish people, just a reference to racial purity. Triumph was received enthusiastically by many in Germany. Though one assumed some people were acting that way in order to keep safe. While other countries were like, <laughs> what? Frank Capra, American director, later repurposed shots from Triumph for his own series of pro-Allies war films, Why We Fight. As previously mentioned, the British also nicked a bit to make fun of the Nazis, making a little clip called General Adolf Takes Over, which we will link in our show notes. In many ways, that kind of humour never gets old. Apparently during the war, Danish resistance members used to sometimes take over cinemas in occupied Denmark and force the projectionists to play General Adolf Takes Over, because why get in firefights with the occupiers of your country when you can take the piss out of them instead? I support this plan. I love it so much. So how do, also considering how volatile film was, were they running around with these flammable like film canisters? Like, put this on, quick! So how does Triumph <laughs> They're bulky too, they're not small. <laughs> that was you. That was me, that was Christina. Okay. So how does Triumph hold up today? I hear quote Roger Ebert, my favourite ever film reviewer, though granted I don't really have another favourite film reviewer. Quote, but how fresh was my memory of Triumph of the Will? I believe I saw it as an undergraduate in college and my memory would have been old and fuzzy even in 1994, overlaid by many assertions of the film's greatness. Now I have just seen it again and I am stunned that I praised it when I was in college. It is one of the most historically important documentaries ever made, yes, but one of the best? It is a terrible film, paralyzingly dull, simple-minded, overlong, and not even manipulative, because it is too clumsy to even manipulate anyone but a true believer. It is not a great movie in the sense that other films in this group are great, but it is great in the reputation it has and the shadow it casts. End quote. Triumph is the film that made Lenny Riefenstahl's name and gave her the accolades and fame she so desperately craved. It would also mean that after the war, her name would forever be associated with the Nazis. But did she deserve it? Right now and after this, I say yes. She forever claimed ignorance of the crimes against humanity perpetuated by the Third Reich. She claimed to have Jewish friends, claimed innocence and clean hands. When you aid and abet a, re a regime of that magnitude, to me, you should repent. However, considering who she was, even if Lenny had repented, it would ring false. She wasn't there for the politics. She was there for her so-called art. She even claimed later she was shocked, shocked that Triumph was used for propaganda purposes. Bitch, what else was it for? You, you can't, I do not believe you can be in the position she was and not know anything. Man on the street, being unaware of the magnitude of things, I could believe that. But Lenny Riefenstahl sitting next to Goebbels, chilling with Hitler, like, she knows something's going on. Like, you can't not yeah. know that stuff is happening, terrible stuff to people, to innocent people. Like, she's got to know that. And her, like, ex-boyfriends, some of whom were Jewish, have all, like, left the country. Like, yeah. yeah. Like, so hold like, on to what you just said. I noticed, like, it was really interesting at the start. Like, she does have a lot of acquaintances, friends, relationships with Jewish people. So she's going to know when all of them start disappearing because they've left or because something terrible has happened to them or their family. So, Hold on to that. A further implication that Lenny was not interested in the political situation is that once Triumph had triumphed throughout Germany, she went off to work on a passion project that would take up most of the ensuing two and a bit decades, an adaptation of the opera Tiefland. 
she claims she tried to refuse making more films for the right, preferring to concentrate on fiction. But in 1935, she made a follow-up to the earlier two films about the Nuremberg rallies and instead made one called Tag der Freiheit, Unsia Wehrmacht. The film was to represent the German army and further reflects the growing public way Hitler and the Nazis flouted the rules of the Treaty of Versailles. In 1936, the International Olympic Committee asked Lenny to film the 1936 Olympics. Or alternatively, in 1936, Hitler invited Lenny to film the Olympics, which were to be held in Berlin. Lenny had long been an athletic and sporty person, obsessed with the human form. This obsession would appear in nearly every single one of her works for the rest of her life. It's in Triumph, shots of shoulders doing what I think are calisthenics and their well-turned calves, and it's in her later photos of the Nuba, and it's even from her time as a dancer. Fank, her one-time mentor, had actually worked on an earlier Olympics as a film director, which Lenny had also attended in a journalistic capacity. This obsession is most present in Olympia, the 200-minute snore fest that I did not finish watching, even though it's all on YouTube. And there's more genitals than I thought there'd be, in that there's genitals. After the 1928 Amsterdam Olympics began to use the Olympic flame, the 1936 Olympics revived the Olympic torch relay. So here's some of my notes from the bits I've watched of Olympia. Is that the Parthenon? Oh, this is Greece. They're aligning Germany with the classics, all art and antiquity. Crossfade into naked man. Bum. Are they wearing little knickers? I think so. They keep running by the sea. The sea was important to the Nazis in triumph. The torch is entering Bulgarian. So um, the torch relay went through Greece, Bulgaria, Yugoslavia, Hungary, Austria, Czechoslovakia, and all these names have popped up on the screen, like they fly up on the in the film, and it's inescapable that most of these countries fell to the Nazis less than five years later. It's like the most disturbing form of accidental foreshadowing. That is truly terrifying. Olympia also pioneered tracking shots, i.e. sticking a camera on rails so it can physically follow along with an athlete's movement. Lenny also worked on experimental techniques, including diving shots where the camera followed the diver from the board into the pool itself, with the cameraman swapping lenses underwater to get the shot. She also pulled out her old standard from Triumph, using wide aerial shots. Sound was also done in a similar way, the majority of the music and cheering being added in at a later date. So kind of like Channel 7 adding in cheering at the Australian Oli- events in the Tokyo Olympics. Slightly different context. I, I thought about that. I'm but just like making they- a dig at Channel 7. Let me take a dig at Channel 7. That's totally fair. Oh my god, I think they've only got one non-white commentator. Like, you know, they have those annoying hosts that are like, wow, Steve, like, what's up next for the Aussies in Tokyo? Well, Beverly, um, they're all like, there's just like old man and blonde lady. Like, there's, yeah. I don't know who any of these people are. They hide them, they, 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 like, they hang them up in, in the cupboard until <laughs> it's their time and then they bring them out. Hmm. Lenny also filmed Jesse Owens winning everything. Um, and if you have been watching the Channel 7 coverage and seen the now and then segment that they play about every five seconds about Jesse Owens, that's probably Lenny Riefenstahl's footage. There is other footage of him. I, I'm pretty sure they would have just used Olympia, though. Yep. And it's Channel 7. They're going to bloody use the Nazi filmmaker. It took almost two years to edit Olympia, and it premiered for Hitler's birthday in 1938. What a lovely present. It later debuted for a wider European audience. And soon after, Lenny popped over to the United States to try and secure a commercial release when ugh, anti-Semitism just had to ruin her good time. To step back a moment, in February 1937, Lenny told a reporter that she felt, quote, 
Hitler was the greatest man who ever lived and was truly without fault, end quote. Mm. She arrived in New York on November 4th, 1938. Five days later in Germany, the Nazi party's paramilitary forces along with German citizens carried out a pogrom against the Jewish citizens of Germany, vandalizing and destroying Jewish shops, homes and synagogues. At least 30,000 Jewish men were taken into concentration camps. This provoked international headlines and condemnation as far afield as Carnarvon in Western Australia, found in the newspaper. Hollywood condemned Riefenstahl and the Nazi film machine, and she was cold-shouldered out of there. However, on 18th of November of that year, noted anti-Semite piece of shit Henry Ford received her in Detroit and even screened Olympia. Walt Disney, rumoured to also be an anti-Semite, but as far as I know, it was more like the regular level of anti-Semitism in this period and anti-communism than Henry Ford, who loathed Jewish people. Disney toured Riefenstahl around the production of Fantasia in December 1938. So even though they tried to hide it, the tour was mostly a failure and Lenny came back to Berlin. But not for long. On September 1st, 1939, the Nazis invaded Poland and Lenny Riefenstahl was amongst the action as a war correspondent. According to some, and by some I mean Lenny herself, when she saw a group of Polish citizens being executed by German soldiers, she tried to intervene, but another German soldier held her at gunpoint until she relented. There is an image of her being forced aside by the soldiers as the killing takes place, and she does look horrified. Later, she claimed to not know who those to not know those victims were Jews. In October 1939, as Hitler had his victory parade through Warsaw, Lini also filmed this, but soon left and did not make another film about the Nazis. Many German filmmakers and artists of the time if they'd not already fled, been arrested or executed, were forced or willingly made art and film for the Nazis. This included the aforementioned Arnold Fank. However, Lenny's ex-boyfriend, actor Louis Trenker, refused to take part in his work being used for propaganda purposes and fled the fascists to Italy, where there was also fascists. So this was not, however, the end of Lenny's relationship with Hitler and the Nazi party. On June 14th, 1940, when the Germans occupied Paris, Lenny wrote an infamous telegram to Hitler. The key bit is this, quote, You exceed anything human imagination has the power to conceive, achieving deeds without parallel in the history of mankind. How can we ever thank you? End quote. She later justified this, saying she thought the war was over and was celebrating. Okay. Lenny and Hitler remained friends until, the around, until around the end of 1944. Her connection to Hitler served her well as Lenny stopped making films or newsreels about the war and instead began to work on Tiefland, a film that still, however, was funded a lot by the Reich, both as an institution and by just different solo members of the Nazis' inner circles. So Tiefland, though not actively about or for the Nazis, made use of the spoils of war. In September 1940, part of the film was shot near Mittenwald when Lenny was sent extras to play Spanish women and farmers. These extras were pulled from salzburg maxbahn concentration camp, a camp specifically for Romani and Sintai people, who were then called gypsies. Lenny later claimed to have no idea that the people were prisoners. But one of the girls who appeared in the film and survived the war, Rosa Winter, then 17, said Lenny had come to the camp and framed the lineup of Romani and Sintai with her fingers, like a camera viewfinder in order to get the looks she wanted. So put a pin in that. I'd like to put a pin in Lenny Riefenstahl. Several pins. I would like to put something bigger than a pin in her. A very big sword. 
These extras were sequestered from the rest of the cast and crew, surrounded by armed guards, and they were not paid, quote, directly, end quote. Of the 27 Romai Osintai extras in the film, 15 were children, and the youngest was three months old. Lenny Riefenstahl made continued use of extras pulled from concentration camps in September 1941, using the same group of people. In April 1942, she, air quotes, requisitioned another 68 adults and children from another camp, Marzan, which had been built on sewage flats. Again, the extras went unpaid, and some had been held in the camp since 1936. Eleven months after their appearance in the film, the majority of those in the Marzan camp were deported to Auschwitz-Birkenau, where they were murdered. Lenny later claimed that Maxline had been a care and welfare camp and claimed the children especially had called her Aunt Lenny when she gave them lollies. Horrifically, Lenny may have even told some of the extras that she would write to the Fuhrer of the government on their behalf asking for their relief, release, but no such letters have ever been found and, of course, nothing happened. As Bach puts it, quote, Lenny was not responsible for what happened to the gypsies after she released them, nor was she likely to have known such a then obscure place names such as Auschwitz, Birkenau, Treblinka and Sobibor, which had not yet begun to haunt civilised memory. The gypsies' availability, rather than their cost, was certainly the decisive factor in using them, for money was no object. At no time does it seem to have occurred to Lenny that there was anything morally questionable about contracting with the Reich for the forced labour of a defenceless minority the Reich openly despised. No word of remorse ever passed her lips, for in her view none was required. The artist knows but one struggle, the struggle for perfection, she later said. End quote. She literally has no sense that other people are human beings who deserve any kind of empathy, sympathy or respect. I just think she literally did not care. And that almost makes it worse. Like you can almost yeah. not respect, you can almost respect the Nazis who really believed the rhetoric who believed that they had to get rid of these minorities because at least they're admitting they did it, you know? Yeah. And it's like, I think as bad as it is, and it's truly horrible, in that case, there's still some sort of like conscious decision making yeah. behind it. Like it's the wrong decision, clearly. I'm not on their side at all. But I feel like with Lenny, it's just it, complete apathy to other people. Complete like, disinterest. Yeah, no thoughts about others whatsoever. So I feel like that is almost what, yeah. For the rest of her life, Lenny Riefenstahl maintained that not only had she not known of the camps, she also argued all the extras had taken part willingly and happily and were still alive to that day. As Hitler's Reich saw successes, her shooting on Tiefland continued and expanded, shooting in Italy and Spain. We know now that Bormann, a high-ranking Nazi, was also a key contributor to her film. Lenny also whined about her longtime adversary Goebbels and held he was sabotaging her. He kind of was. He felt all theatre and film should be directed to both propaganda and easy-to-make films that would distract the public from the horrors of the war. It was a golden time other than that. Hitler was winning the war, Lenny was the most powerful director in the Reich, and was well on the way to making the most expensive film in history. She didn't quite get that. The Soviet Union was about to be invaded. Oh, so in June 1941, Hitler invaded the Soviet Union, which is widely now regarded as a bad move. At the time, it seemed like a good one, but alas, in Soviet Russia, winter invades you. 
Never invade Russia in the winter. Never invade okay. Russia. Never engage in land war with China. Never invade Russia in the winter. Well, they invaded in summer and they were so cocky they thought they'd be out of there by winter. But they were not. Due to the rocky road the war was now on and Goebbels' interference, Tieflin's shooting was often disrupted. Oh, poor Lenny. On the train to Berlin around this time, Lenny noticed a first lieutenant in the Wehrmacht named Peter Jacobs. He was seven years younger than her, put a pin in that, and coincidentally he was travelling to work as an extra on the set of Tiefland. Their attraction was so strong that they broke down the door of her hotel room. Or, if you ask an acquaintance of both of them, Isabella Ploberger, she introduced the two of them. Like Lenny, Peter was a big fan of drama in his relationships and they both cheated on each other a lot, even while enjoying a brief period of domestic rest in Bavaria. In late 1941, Peter was redeployed to the front, but also took himself to Berlin to bang some actresses too, which caused Lenny distress. I have no sympathy for her. (laughs) He proposed to Lenny in August 1942, by this point having been made a major, partially because of his talent for survival and partially because the Germans were beginning to run through officers, like something we run run out of a lot. I don't know, vaccines. (laughs) Lenny's father, Albert, had been forced to retire because of a weak heart. So her brother, Heinz, succeeded Albert as being in charge of the firm, which also meant Heinz wasn't forced to go to the front. He was an essential worker. With his wife, Ilsa, he had two children. But by the early 1940s, their marriage was in trouble and they were going through a divorce with a messy custody battle and were both cheating on each other as quickly as Germany was running out of offices. By December 1942, they were officially divorced. Around this time also, a friend of Heinz denounced him presumably to the Gestapo, for buying black market meat and talking shit about Hitler. Ilsa had also begun a relationship with an SS officer, and she claimed that Heinz had been having an affair with a Jewish woman, breaking anti-racial mixing laws. Lenny later speculated it was either of these two reasons that had led to Heinz being sent to the Russian front in in what was called a punishment battalion. He was ordered to the Russian front in May 1943. Lenny kept a brave face in public, but in private, she asked Albert Speer, Hitler's favourite architect, to please help her get her brother to safety, perhaps through putting him into officer training, which would take him away from the front. Speer finally got back to Lenny on the 6th of June, 1944, aka D-Day. No, he basically said, your brother's shit at fighting and shit at following rules. He's staying where he is. In August 1942, the Battle of Stalingrad had begun. By the end of the battle in February 1943, there were around 2 million casualties on both sides, and the German 6th Army, the most decorated army in the Reich's history, had been destroyed. Heinz probably wasn't at Stalingrad, but this battle and other losses shocked the Germans. No longer was the Fuhrer an invincible military strongman. They, the master race, had lost to a bunch of backward Slavic communists who had no industrial capability on the level of the Third Reich. Whoops. Turns out there's no such thing as the master race, sweetie. On February 18th, 1943, two weeks after the loss, Goebbels lost his nut in front of 14,000 people in a speech where he declared Stalingrad was a call to destiny for Germany and a call to total war. The implication being, of course, defiance and death before defeat. So during this time, Lenny was in Spain. Good for her. Filming Tiefland. All right. All right. She reunited with Peter Jacobs and they went to Berlin, grabbed all of Lenny's filming gear and her star from her production studio, and moved it all to the relative safety of Austria in Kitzbühel, which had, according to Wikipedia, 
the good fortune to remain undamaged from the ravages of the First and Second World Wars. I spent a lot of time on Wikipedia, like, clicking through where they, like, went just in this little bit of Austria. They're in, like, the pancreas bit of Austria. Yeah. Ah, I hear the liver's nicer at this time of year. (laughs) There, in a three-story mansion, Lenny had the time and space to start work on the post-production of Tiefland. Goering was also hanging around with Kitzbühel, around Kitzbühel, which was very handy when the French and the Americans popped up and arrested him. Goering was found guilty of crimes against humanity at the Nuremberg trials, but killed himself before he could be hanged. In 1944, it was a big year for the Reich and it was a big year for Letty. She went through two major events and two major tragedies. One, the event, her dad died of heart failure, but she wasn't that fond of him. Interestingly, the day of Albert Riefenstahl's funeral was also the day of the Valkyrie assassination plot, which failed. So that's when they made the movie about with Tom Cruise. Yep. Um, Hitler actually ordered the perpetrators of the plot tortured and executed, and then he watched film of it happening. Hmm. What a normal guy. So the second event for Letty was she and Peter Jacobs got married. The first tragedy to her. This was also around the last time she saw Hitler in person. If you've seen the film Downfall, which I would really recommend in the original German, um, you'll know by now Hitler was methed up, potentially suffering from Parkinson's disease and on a cocktail of drugs in addition to the meth. He was increasingly deluded and cracking under the strain of being a giant fucking loser. Uh-huh. Hitler met with Lenny in order to meet her new husband, and though he was in very poor uh, in a very poor state, Lenny said he still cast the same mesmerising spell over people as he had in his glory days. Second tragedy for Lenny. At around the same time as both her father's burial and the 15th failed assassination of Hitler, Lenny's brother Heinz was more or less vaporised by a grenade in modern-day Latvia. In hindsight, and perhaps for the only time, Lenny expressed regret that she had not raised the issue of Heinz's deployment to Hitler. She claimed to have felt reluctant to do so because of the strain of war. The simultaneous deaths of Lenny's father and brother raised legal issues that we have no time to go into here. In addition to this legal battle, Lenny became fixated on finishing Tiefland, probably in an attempt to keep the stress of the war at bay. Paris was liberated. (laughs) Paris was liberated, then Italy was taken by the Yanks, then the Russians reached East Prussia. Even though she was in a relatively safe spot, Kitzbühel, which according to Wikipedia had the good fortune to remain undamaged from the ravages of the First and Second World Wars. I just really enjoyed the quote. I don't know why. (laughs) The good fortune. Bombers flew overhead nightly on the way to bomb the hell out of Munich. I went to Munich in 2010 and they were still rebuilding the city. Lenny was still so rattled she actually took herself to Italy in search of her husband. How careless to lose him. He'd been deployed. How careless to lose him. I have no sympathy for her whatsoever. Yeah, I have a fail. Hey, yeah, I'm just like, he didn't just leave, he was deployed. But you can't blame him if he just left, he was a bit of a slut, so you know. Yeah, yeah. She found him in Murano, where he was bedridden with rheumatism. And he then took herself to Berlin for this legal issue. Which I've just hidden, so now Hannah's reading it for the first time. Which basically she was trying to disinherit her brother's children so they'd not get any of her money. What a fucking bitch. Of his money. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry, I, I was lost in the fact that she's a fucking bitch. <laughs> Around this time, Hans Schneeberger, her ex-boyfriend and cameraman, reached out to Lenny asking for her help. He was going to be put into the civilian militia of Vienna. She claimed she needed him for Tiefland and he was released. His half-Jewish wife, Gisela, was also imprisoned and Lenny ensured her release. But this doesn't seem to have been out of a genuine change of heart and rejection of the Reich. It's more that Schneeberger had entreated her and Lenny enjoyed being in control. 
or she had loyalty to him and his wife, but not out of some greater political or humanist purpose. She would end up fleeing Kitzbühel with the Schneebergers. I could also feel like she could be like, now you owe me. Like it's sort of a transactional to her. Like I will do this thing for you, but now you owe me a big favour. I think anytime i think she knew that subconsciously but i think it's just a power thing that she's like oh good hands yeah. come crawling back to me oh yeah yeah so on march 19 um hitler did the thing all dictators end up doing if they don't die covered in their own urine on the bedroom floor he basically said fight to the death if you're still alive when this war is over you're a bad german and an inferior german all the good people will be dead i'm on a lot of meth right now according to lenny her last view of berlin looked like the end of the world she took her original Olympia negatives, jumped in the car with the Schneebergers, and they went to the Zilla Valley, which is further south in Austria, closer to the Italian border. There they stayed for a few weeks until they heard on April 30th that Hitler had killed his dog and shot himself in the Führerbunker underneath Berlin. Gisela rejoiced when they heard this on the radio, whilst Lenny fell to her bed, weeping. The next day, the Schneebergers ditched Lenny, and she followed their trail to a hotel owned by a relative of Hans. This relative tried to block her from getting in the hotel, saying, we don't take any Nazis. Lenny confronted Hans and Gisela, and Gisela said, are you here? Are you crazy? Do you think you could stay here with us? Lenny turned to Hans, who remained silent and waited, as Gisela continued, you thought we'd help you, you Nazi slut. I don't like calling women sluts, but you know what, Gisela? Gisela gets to do that. Gisela has earned that right, I feel. And that was how Lenny Riefenstahl would be seen for the rest of her life, a Nazi collaborator. Lenny attempted to flee on bicycle and was picked up, detained, and then escaped from American troops multiple times, mostly because they had no idea who she was, which she also found insulting. And I then- love this idea. I, 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 could, I feel like this would work well in a comedy film. She like is escaping because they don't know who she is, but then she goes like, don't you know who I am? And like, she forces them to watch her films, yeah. and they're like, oh, okay, we'll arrest you again. Yeah, Taika Waititi could make this, I reckon, actually. Oh, he could. I would enjoy um, that. Eventually, she was picked up and held in Kitzbühel and re- reunited with her mother and her husband at the Ribbentrop estate, where I believe they were holding what they thought were refugees. She and her mother quickly worked to charm the American troops, even as Lenny, in her broken English, still referred to Jews being the root of a- all of her problems in her career. Eventually, the Americans figured out who she was and confronted her with the realities of the Third Reich, forcing her to look at pictures of Dachau, Auschwitz, Buchenwald, and Bergen-Belsen. Lenny claimed to have known nothing of the camps, despite Rose Winter's later assertions that Lenny had picked her forced extras from concentration camps. Lenny may not have known of death camps precisely, but she claimed absolute naivety of any and all elements of the Holocaust and the extermination of the Jews, the Roma, and the Sinti during the war until the day she died. Through her interrogation with the Americans, we can see Lenny attempting to construct a palatable narrative about herself. She claimed she'd been forced to work with the Nazis and was an established artist before the party came to power. However, she did not renounce her relationship with Hitler. Perhaps the Americans underestimated her. The Nazis had very few women in their upper echelons and they assumed that Lenny was merely a foolish artist hanging on. The American report on Lenny Riefenstahl summarised, quote, if her statements are sincere, she has never grasped and still does not grasp the fact that she, by dedicating her life to art, has given expression to a gruesome regime and contributed to its glorification, end quote. Lenny claimed that she had been under Hitler's spell, but privately spoke very highly of him. She even absolved him of the Holocaust. So 
But Lenny wasn't the only person to claim Hitler hadn't been at fault for the Holocaust. A lot of Holocaust deniers actually also claim Hitler had no idea. Um, his personal secretary, Johanna Wolf, and I believe Trader Jung for a while also argued he couldn't have known. So the extent to which Hitler knew or was involved in the details of the Holocaust has and will always be a matter of debate. But the simple fact is not conveniently written down in his diary. Nothing has been written down. But the simple fact. But the simple fact is the sheer amount of resources from even before they took power that the Nazis put into the attempted extermination of not only the European Jewry but also the Roma, the Sinti, the disabled through the T4 Action Plan, communists, Slavs, homosexuals political dissidents, religious dissidents, and others, he must have known and actioned elements. The scale is simply too great, and Hitler's horrendous hatred of Jews from page one of Mein Kampf is too present and virulent for him not to have been involved. And there's also, like, there's the historic argument that, okay, so if you somehow, you know, he wasn't involved directly, if somehow he managed to not be involved directly, his rhetoric and everything pushed everything in that direction like so everyone who carried out the holocaust even if not under direct orders from hitler was doing it because they thought that's what he wanted yeah. so like it all goes back to him regardless of how you look at it the fact is the nazis were putting so much resources into the holocaust especially focusing on the extermination of european jury that they probably could have held off the loss of the war a little yeah. longer if they hadn't been diverting so many resources yeah. That in many ways is quite one of the most fundamentally disturbing things about the war for me. Yeah. If you hadn't been so focused on all this horror, you might have won the war that you wanted to win. Oh, they would never have won the war. Not once the Americans. No, but like, I hate to say it, but once the Americans got there. <laughs> Speaking of, on June 3rd, 1945, the Americans said she was free to go. And Lenny returned to Kutzbuhel. Kitzbühel, where the French were taking over administrative duties from the Americans. Wonderful, Lenny thought to herself upon seeing the French, remembering how she'd won the Paris Film Festival all those years ago. The French love me. They'll be happy to see me. An artiste. The French, upon seeing Lenny, remembered A, the occupation of their country by the Germans, and B, presumably Lenny's morning telegram to Hitler upon the fall of Paris, they were not happy to see Lenny at all. Sacre bleu, get the bitch, they said, and arrested her. They interrogated Lenny and found her, air quotes, undesirable, end air quotes, and so gave her 24 hours to leave the French zone of occupation. She did not meet this deadline and was arrested and taken to Innsbruck Women's Prison. An American soldier she'd, soldier she'd made friends with organised for her release and she headed back to Kitzbühel. An American author, the Jewish-raised Bud Schulberg, who later was involved with the movie On the Waterfront, was in Austria um, gathering evidence against war criminals. So he tracked down Lenny in order to access, hopefully, copies of Victory of Faith and Day of Freedom. The US obviously already had a copy of Triumph of the Will. Schulberg played at being a fellow artist to Lenny, buttering her up before asking where he might be able to get some of her films. She claimed Triumph wasn't propaganda and showed him her little Paris Film Festival certificate to prove it. She then also claimed that she'd been forced into working for the regime. Terrified Goebbels will put her into a camp. Now we're going to have the one bit I figured would be vaguely appropriate to make into a role play scenario. Do you want to be the Nazi or the American spy turned investigator turned author? Uh, I'm going to go American. You're going to be the American? All right, you're very sneaky. That's all you need to know. Okay. All right, I'm Lenny Riffins. Oh, fuck this shit. 
I knew nothing of the camps. I was just an artist working away. It is all about the work for me, all about the work. It is not my fault when people take it the wrong way. Were you ever forced into making those films? Sounds pretty scary. It was so scary. I was so afraid of Goebbels. I thought he would put me in a concentration camp and have me killed. I thought you didn't know about the concentration camps. And scene. Also, there's a bit in like Casablanca where they talk about concentration camps. Like everybody knew about the camps. Yeah. Yep. 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 Lenny was. Is that that is satisfying to me? It's so like it's such a mic drop moment. Like I thought you didn't know about the concentration camps. Oh. Oh. That's how the the American told the story. So again, he might also be making it up, but I choose not to because this woman is so far up her own ass. I could see her completely. She is a manipulator and like. Yeah. Yeah. And manipulators often don't know when they're being manipulated because mm. they assume that they're the smartest person in the situation and no one could manipulate them. Yeah. So Lenny was technically under house arrest still and her embarrassment deepened when the French seized her bank accounts. She'd never see that money again. Oh, well. What a shame. The French also confiscated the Tieflin prints. What a shame. And it took her almost a decade to get the film back and finish it. She tried to enter it into the 1954 Cannes Film Festival, which had been set up in part in the late 1930s due to the French desire to compete with the Venice Film Festival, which had shown a massive fascist bias to films including Riefenstahl's. The first film at the Cannes Film Festival in 1939 was the humanist drama The Hunchback of Notre Dame, notably the first adaptation of the original novel to show the main gypsy character. I think they're called gypsies in the novel, so that's why I left that word there. Okay. For- and her family and people as humans. The Cannes Film Festival summarily rejected Tiefland from being entered. Lenny only completed one other film for the rest of her life, an underwater documentary. So oh, going back... Get out the world's tiniest violin. So going back now to like the 1940s. So eventually Lenny, her husband and her mother moved to Freiburg where Arnold Fank had grown up. Fank took one look at Lenny and refused to have anything to do with her even though they'd both made propaganda for the Nazis at one point or another. However, it does seem Fank was more unwilling. Feeling her career was over, exhausted by her husband's continual infidelities and perhaps subsuming guilt, but now I've read that out loud, I don't, I actually doubt it, Lenny had a mental break and spent a few months in a private psychiatric clinic. She also divorced her husband. She sought out the Prince of Tiefland, but as said earlier, it took years to get them back from the very, very annoyed French. One Frenchman wasn't that pissed off. Jean Cocteau, friend of Edith Piaf and others, actually wanted to work with Riefenstahl, but unfortunately for Lenny, he popped his clogs before anything came to fruition. Lenny lived to over 100, but continued to be dogged by rumours of her involvement with the Nazis for the rest of her life. By various tribunals and trials, she was found more or less to be a sympathiser to the Nazis, but had not committed crimes against humanity herself. Which is, the bar is on the floor... She constantly sued people who claimed she'd had further knowledge of the Nazis. We'll just touch on one of these here. Nina Gluditz, a German filmmaker. Nina claimed that Riefenstahl personally chose the Roma and Sinti extras at a camp. She had found a survivor who countered Lenny's claims that she had met many of the extras after the war, and they were all completely fine. This survivor was able to match faces in production images to names on death lists. In a court decision in 1987, it was found Lenny had selected the Roma and Sinti forced extras at Max Plan, the concentration camp, and used them as forced labour. However, Lenny did win on one count, 
as Gladitz and the survivor claimed that Lenny had told the extras that they were headed for Auschwitz, which was not provable. This basically unfortunately ruined Nina's film career as a documentarian. But as of 2020, those allegations have been deepened in a new book. But as far as I can tell, that book's not in English yet, so I can't read it. Um, so a few more notes. In 2002, Lenny was also taken to court by a Roma group who accused her of denying the attempted extermination of the Romani during the Holocaust. This is one of the few points where Lenny admitted that perhaps something, if you look at it from 17 different angles with a, mic with a microscope, is one of the few times in her life she might have admitted some form of culpability, but not really. She said, quote, I regret that Sinti and Roma people had to suffer during the period of National Socialism. It is known today that many of them were murdered in concentration camps, end quote, which is such a politician's answer. She's not admitting anything. All the passive voice there. It is known today. Yeah, they had it to is suffer. to be regretted. Lenny went on to work as a photographer in the Sudan, becoming obsessed with the Nuba people, and she attempted to make a film about modern slavery, which resulted in sweet fuck all. Her photography of the Nuba led to her being granted Sudanese citizenship. And if you want to be part of an African country, why not Sudan? It's been ravaged by war. She must feel comfortable there. The photos of the Nuba, uh, well, they're fine. The fact of the matter is Lenny Riefenstahl is not a good filmmaker. Aesthetically, a lot of it is nice to look at. And I mean that in the most bland sense of the world. As I said earlier, there is no depth to her work. I don't think there's any depth to her. I think she the was... The films are like lobby art, I feel. Like this yes. bland stuff you put in a hotel lobby. Yeah. That means nothing. It just looks She thinks pretty. it's deep, but it's not. She was a fundamentally selfish, self-serving person and a user of people for her own ends. Not just, like, from early in her life, she's using men to get what she wants. Mm -hmm. uh, and then she goes on to use people in the most desperate situations of some people in modern, in all of history. She is a cruel, selfish, shallow husk of a person. So when it, whatever this, why why she was like this, we don't know. Whether it was innate in her from birth or it came from a shitty upbringing in the state Berlin was in for Long World War One, or a mix of things, we don't know. But the fact is she had many, like, actress contemporaries and male filmmaker contemporaries. There is no one female film, filmmaker contemporary who did it. They all turned and either were forced into working for the Nazis and repented or they worked against the Nazis. And Marlena Dietrich is a really key example of this. She rescinded her German citizenship. And she worked against them. You're right. I do regret what I said earlier that I could maybe possibly support that if she was not so terrible. I don't support it at all. She is terrible. That's okay. I take back, I take back it all. Um, I feel like it's sort of like when people use like mental health excuse as a reason for like a white guy who went on a mass shooting spree. Hmm. Like, all these other people around the world who have mental health issues don't do that. So I feel like there's an element of at what point do you stop saying it's something else and start saying it was her, she made these decisions. Yeah. And she never had that come to Jesus moment of, look, my films were used to prop up the Nazi regime. Yeah. She I never like ever admitted any kind of fault for that. And that's the worst part because if she'd admitted culpability, it's like, Marjan Satrapi actually realised if she stayed in Iran, she would end up having to work for the government as like an artist, as a propagandist. And so one, we didn't talk about this in that one on her because it's after she came back to Iran um, from Europe the first time. She denounced a man in public in order to get the secret police from looking at her. 
and her mm. grandmother was and she she told her this story to her grandma like lol it was so funny they arrested him and took him away and her grandmother lost her absolute mind at her and was like you are so cruel how could you do that your grandfather didn't die in prison your uncle didn't die for this for you to act this way and that was um this moment where she realized how the regime could affect people Mm. and for the rest of her life she's worked towards repenting almost for that and using her art to make the world a better more aware and more kind place and then we've got on the other hand this woman who worked within this regime to purely her own ends for not great art um which it doesn't matter if it was the greatest woman in fucking history it wouldn't matter it's like it does not matter she is a cruel selfish shallow husk of a human being and i hate it if she had had like a repentant moment like as you said earlier like it would be it wouldn't ring true if lenny repented based on who she is if she had even attempted it it would it would be a bit like okay you've understood that you made bad choices like alternatively if she come out and said i agree completely with hitler and he did nothing wrong you'd be like okay yeah. At least you've admitted you knew what they were doing. But yeah. neither she just tried to be like, I had nothing to do with it. Who? Me? Yeah. It was she she tried to play the line of like art is separate from the world and it's not. She In is- conclusion, bitch. Also, borderline pedophile. Hannah, would you like to roll us out? Oh, what a fun note to end on. <laughs> so Lenny worked basically until the day she died. When she was 60, she entered into a relationship with her 20-year-old cameraman, Hurt Hortzkettner, and they were together until she died, aged 101, only a year after releasing her final film, Underwater Impressions. I spent so long, and I'm going to get arrested for this, looking up the word, because, like, there's different categories of pedophile. Like, mm-hmm. if you're if they're into people who are, like, below 10 or early puberty or late puberty, I'm like, this woman... Like, if it was, like, if he was 40 and she was 80, which is the same age, if I would have been totally fine with it. If he was 30 and she was 70, I'd be fine. But he's 20 years old. That is yeah. fucked up. It's so fucked up. Like, can you imagine like, if he was, like, a, a man who was the 16-year-old yeah. and a woman who was the 20-year-old? Yeah. The same age gap is not so bad. Like, you know, saying 80 and 40 and stuff. It's because of the power imbalance in different ages. So, like, uh. a 60-year-old. And a 20-year-old. The 20-year-old has no life experience to draw on. So it's like why a lot of older men like 18-year-old women because they can mould them because the 18-year-old has nothing to draw on that makes them say this is wrong. And I can't help, I tried to look up a lot about horse cat. Now, most of what I could find was in German, unfortunately, and there isn't a lot out there about him that I can see. And it's like, I don't know what happened to him, but I feel so awful for this man because I feel like... He could have been groomed by this woman who has, by this point, 60 years of manipulating people to get what she wants. He had no chance. So she's the director, he's the cameraman. Like, as well, you have that power imbalance there as well. Like, everything about this is fucked up. And this is just another example of Lenny using her, whatever influence and power she's managed to grasp to get her own ends regardless of other people. So no other German propagandist in history has gotten as much shit as Lenny Riefenstahl, but no other German propagandist ever made Triumph of the Will and Olympia and then repeatedly apologised for Hitler. So is it deserved? There was no one else like her in the war. So is this hatred in part because she was a woman? Look, probably partially, like a little tiny bit, but also no. I have absolutely no respect for this woman. Her personality. Like, 
I think if a man had been in the same situation and was like, I'm doing it for the art and nothing else and I know nothing and I knew nothing and Hitler's my best bud, you'd still be like, that's fucking bullshit, yeah. right? If you take out all the sexual politics, she is still yeah. an absolutely atrocious yeah. trash bag of a person. Yeah. So, like, maybe there's a bit more because she's a woman, but it's still, like, it's it's still justified, I feel. Oh, absolutely. So, <laughs> that was <laughs> that was our first episode on a Nazi. Um, this put me in a really bad mood for, like, tr- the whole time I was writing it. Like, every time I had to think about her, I was just, like, writing it, like, grumpy and just angry at the injustice. Like, she never spent a day in jail, except for the time she was held at Innsbruck. She wasn't charged with anything. That's, that's truly horrendous. Especially now, considering like, they, um, the Germans are right now running through the last of the surviving ones they can find, the last concentration camp guards, they're charging them. Because I've realised I don't have any time left. Um, and, like, surely... Like if, if you're charging concentration camp guards, which, again, there's an element of how much do they know, how much are they following orders, how much say do they have. But, like, if you're charging guards who are much lower cogs in the wheel, like, much lower in the system, and you're not charging someone like her, that's that's not fair. Yeah. <laughs> Fuck this true. bitch, man. I hate her. Anyway, yeah. we have social media. She's the worst. <laughs> I was, I was like, we're gonna make sure we do like a, a, a quote unquote evil woman one day, so we're not like all women in war are amazing. But also, this was a fucking drag. She's just the yeah, worst. This wasn't fun. And part of the reason we put this podcast together was to have fun with history. And I'm not having fun <laughs> anymore. <laughs> I'm. But I'm so glad we've done it. I'm cold. I'm sitting in my parents' walk-in wardrobe. I've just. I'm under in- a blanket. I've been dreaming about fucking concentration cams. I'm going. But I have a cookie. I have a very good cookie to eat once we're done. So at the end of the day, we have to return to how we sort of started. So August 2nd is um, Roma Holocaust Memorial Day in some countries. It's not marked in Australia, though we do have a small Roma population um, because it's not been like internationally agreed upon. The Roma, along with a lot of other sub sub minorities, are forgotten as victims of the Holocaust because the majority of victims of the Holocaust were Jewish people. However, it is important to remember that there were many, many other victims dating back to the mid-1930s before the war actually began, especially regarding the treatment of disabled people and the elderly at the hands of the Nazis. So if you do anything today, uh, if you want to do something after this, I would go seek out books, stories, art by the Roma and think of something you can do to appreciate the survivors and their bravery for standing up to her afterwards. So I think we can leave it there. Yeah. If you stayed with us, well done. You might have had to take a break during this one because I know I fucking did. Um, You could also go get a cookie. That's my expert opinion. Go get a cookie. It's an order. So really you have no choice because I order you to get a cookie. You're just following orders if you go and get a cookie. Fuck off, Nicola. (laughs) So um, (laughs) you might not want to now, but we have a lot of social medias at Women of War Pod. Um, If you have any questions about this episode or concerns, we also have an email. You can shoot, go to our website, womenofwarpod.com, and um, shoot us an email if you have any questions or concerns or want to, like, clarify some points because I did a lot of research for this and I'm willing to, you know, back up my claims and Lenny Riffersall being 
a fucking cunt. So um, hope none of my students. And I'm so proud of us for getting to the end of the episode before we called her a cunt. Well, to quote someone else, when I called Tony Abbott the c-word, she was like, "How dare you? He has no warmth and no depth." So I retract my statement. Lenny Riefenstahl is just a husk of a human being. <laughs> she is not a. She is not a cunt. She has no warmth and no depth, and no life yep. comes from her. Yep. All right. On that note. <laughs> Thank you for listening, and I promise next time we you hear our beautiful voices, it will be maybe not cheerfuler, but at least a human being worthy of respect and time. Well, next time we're doing the founder of the Red Cross in America, so that's a lot nicer. That is a lot nicer. All right. So, yeah, we'll see you then. See you then. Well, you'll hear us then. One of them. Bye. <laughs> Bye. <laughs>